This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. And by Points of Courage, a new business podcast from Hiscox about courage. Get Points of Courage wherever you find your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, June 1st, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Dateline Tbilisi, a group from the radical ultra-nationalist Georgia Power, not the local arena football team, actual ultra-nationalists, attacked employees and patrons Sunday evening at a vegan cafe located in Tbilisi's bustling city center. Witnesses said at least 15 far-right extremists stormed into the small Kiwi Cafe and began hurling sausages and meat at both the staff and the cafe's customers. That was from Georgia Today. I will go on to read more. According to the cafe statement, quote, they pulled out some grilled meat, sausages, and fish, and started eating them and throwing them at us, and finally they started to smoke. Wait, they smoked the fish and the meat? So delicious, that takes a while. Now, oh, wait, oh, I see, they were smoking cigarettes. It was just another sign of quasi-fascist or actual fascist disrespect, the cafe's patrons allege. Indeed, this really could be a serious sign of the roiling fascist sentiment within the former Soviet Republic, absolutely, or it could be the inevitable tofurkey backlash. You give someone a tofurkey, you don't tell them it's a tofurkey, they panic, they lash out with sausage, now, this comes against the backdrop of just days before nationalists marched through Tbilisi. And according to uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, they were chanting Georgians for Georgia. Let me let me read you why that's important. This slogan is a twist on Georgia for Georgians, which the government denounced in 2005 as poisonous nationalist rhetoric. Yes, the slogan, is it a twist? It's barely a twist. I would say it's the lowest form of changing something to qualify as a twist. It's not exactly Noel Coward-esque wordplay. And I said, let's get out of these wet clothes and into a set of less wet clothes while drinking some alcohol. Don't worry on this show. In the face of this dearth of wit that we just heard from and the attack on soy and soy-related products, we have breath we have depth, and we have bread. And in the spiel, we have Ghostbusters. But first, what happens when Americans can't meet rent payments? A sociologist spent years in the inner city, and the resulting book is 
evicted. You know, shaving is seen by many as a chore, but I've got to say, it can be a liberation. I went away for a Memorial Day weekend. I did not pack my razor, and by Sunday, I was itching, literally, to shave that face. So I got home, and I picked up my Harry's. What? With the five German-crafted blades, with the flex hinge, with the lubricating strip. Harry's is a great shave at a fair price. And to me, on the last shave that I embarked upon, it was a facial liberation. I'll tell you a little bit more about Harry's. They have a limited edition Father's Day shave set. You get a great very, uh, very comely, very good-looking razor handle, a chrome razor stand, moisturizing foaming gel, three blade cartridges, a travel cover. It's all for 40 bucks. Plus, it comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and a personalized card. I got more for you than that. I got a discount on top of all of that. Go to harrys.com right now and redeem a special offer for fans of the gist five dollars off your first purchase be that the starter set which is only 15 bucks or that father's day set which i told you about five dollars off if you haven't used our code yet and if you haven't what are you crazy you don't know anyone who shaves our code is the gist so go to h-a-r-r-y-s.com enter code just to check out and get five dollars off get dad something he will definitely use for father's day Eviction, the process of eviction, is an extremely traumatic event. In fact, it is so traumatic, it's so extreme that it used to be pretty rare. And when an eviction would happen almost 100 years ago, there are newspaper accounts talking about crowds gathering to watch an eviction taking place. Well, now it's so common as to be perceived as not news. And that's why Matthew Desmond, who is the John Loeb Associate Professor of Social Sciences at Harvard, well, that's exactly why he wanted to look at it. This thing that has become so unexceptional really is exceptional on a personal level. He's written a book called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, and it's uh, concentric circles. He follows people. He follows tenants in the city of Milwaukee, but he also gets to know landlords. He gets to know the players in the court system. He gets to really let us in on a whole ecosystem. I think that's called sociology. Hello, Matthew Desmond. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how'd you get the idea for the book? I just always was concerned about how much poverty we have in America. You know, we're the richest democracy with the worst poverty. And that's something that's always got under my skin. It's something that I've always found unnecessary. And I wanted to understand the role that housing plays in that story. And I thought eviction was a very good window or opportunity to understand that link between housing and poverty. And why Milwaukee? I think that the story of the American city is written on the margins. You know, we have a lot of books about New York and San Francisco, the cities are obviously very important. We have a lot of books about cities like Detroit and Newark. Um, but I think that we are missing books on cities like Milwaukee and Cincinnati and Indianapolis. And I think that if you write a book on Milwaukee, you have a shot at telling a story that's more representative than you do if you kind of tell the story uh, on the margins. Where'd you start? Did you start with a tenant and then go from there uh, in the way you lay it out in the book? Because that's the chronology of the book, but what's the chronology of your process? I moved to Milwaukee and I was like, okay, how do I meet families getting evicted? And 
I uh, opened the paper and I read a story about a trailer park that might be facing mass evictions because there were so many code violations and police calls. And so I moved in. I moved into the trailer park and I rented a trailer and um, lived there for about five months. And it didn't, the mass eviction didn't happen. The trailer park didn't get shut down. But it was a fine place to meet families going through everyday ordinary evictions. So I started in the trailer park and then I moved into the inner city and rented a room in a rooming house and lived there for about 10 months and followed families getting evicted and their landlords doing the evicting. And this was in 2008, 2009? That was the period? That's when I started. Yeah, that's when I lived there. That's right. Was that the worst time? I mean, the economy crashed in uh, 2000, the last months of 2007. So the reverberations must have been felt most acutely then. You know, if you look at eviction rates, they're high before the crash, they're high during the crash, and they're high after the crash. And, you know, the foreclosure crisis was this major event in the national stage and the global stage. But evictions are much higher every year than foreclosures, and that was even true during the crisis. And so I think that for folks that are very poor, uh, they've been facing a lifetime of recessions, if you, if you will, you know, a generation of recessions. And so I think what your book shows us, we'll get to a couple stories, but I don't, I, I think it's too simple to talk about villains. I mean, the, the people who you would think would be the villains, the, the landlords, they wind up being as sympathetic as some of the people who are being evicted. It's way too simple to, to talk about good guys and bad guys. And I think that depending on where you are on the political spectrum, some of us might be more inclined to say, oh, these tenants, they're just irresponsible or oh, these landlords are just greedy. But when you spend time with both of those parties, you realize that it's a lot more complicated. And you see landlords at turns in the book buying families groceries, giving people breaks, letting rents uh, slide. Uh, but you also see them evicting families for calling the building inspector for other capricious ways. So, yeah, the relationship is, 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 is very complicated, and I, I'm glad you felt that way. That, that tells me that I did my job. And the landlords aren't just – it's not as if these are uh, middle class or upper class kind of rich people out of the goodness of their heart buying someone groceries. Uh, the, some of the landlords who you profile are people who are exactly the kind of uh, up-by-your-bootstrap workers that you know society points to and says, you should do that. They bought an apartment building, but their profit margins are so small that if their tenants don't pay the rent, then they go out of business, and maybe they get evicted. There is a deep relationship. I mean, one um, question I had going into this project was, why would you buy property in some of the worst neighborhoods of a city. And when I ended the book, I, I, I thought, well, why wouldn't you? You know, the profit margins are there. You know, so one of the landlords we follow in the book, her name is Sharina. She owned 36 units. All of them were in inner city Milwaukee. She rented exclusively to folks um, that were below the poverty line or right around there. And she netted about $10,000 a month. So she had a six-figure income. Uh, she lived in... Uh, five-bedroom house. She took trips to the Caribbean every year. And what she made in a month on average was more than many of her tenants took home in a year. I think we need to face that fact uh, when, we, when we try to think about what's causing poverty today. And what about systemic reasons for it or people, maybe the apex predators of the eviction economy? There are, hey, look, I guess you can make the case that if you have rules that allow for evictions pretty easily, like it doesn't seem that there are too many hurdles to evict a tenant in Milwaukee, then there's going to be some incentive for a businessman to concoct a uh, 
uh, software program that allows for it or, you know, people who are pretty far removed from the actual streets of Milwaukee who are making a buck on evictions? There has been an economy that's come around to help triage the fallout from the affordable housing crisis. So we do have dozens and dozens of companies that collect eviction records and sell those to landlords. There are moving companies that specialize in eviction. Their crew working all day, every day. There are lawyers who specialize in being eviction lawyers that work for landlords. I think the larger structural forces here at work are three. One is over the last two decades, incomes have slumped, especially for families of moderate means, but their housing costs have soared. So between 1995 and now, median rent in this country has increased by over 70%. And during the years when more and more families were kind of in need of help to meet this basic need of shelter, fewer and fewer were receiving it. I think that many Americans still believe that the typical low-income family lives in public housing or gets some sort of government help when it comes to paying the rent. But the opposite is true. Only about one in four families who qualify for housing assistance receive it. And in some of our biggest cities, the waiting list for public housing isn't counted in years, it's counted in decades. So a young parent that applied for public housing in you know, Washington, D.C. might be a grandparent by the time her or his application came out for review. What's the role? I know you've written textbooks essentially on race. So you study, you followed, didn't study, lived with white people and black people. What role does race play in this? You know, race continues to be a central part of the American story, and it's certainly a big part of the eviction crisis. You know, who gets evicted? The face of our eviction epidemic is moms with kids. And if you or any of your listeners have spend time in an urban housing court, you just see a ton of kids. Until recently, for example, the housing court in the South Bronx had a daycare inside of it because there were so many kids coming through its doors. And mothers who live in low-income African-American communities are evicted at startlingly high rates. You know, among Milwaukee renters, for example, one in five black women reports being evicted sometime in her life compared to one in 15 white women. This is kind of like the feminine equivalent to incarceration. This is a common but critical event in the lives of many, many poor African-American women. But the eviction crisis isn't just in low-income communities of color. It's also in white communities like trailer parks. It's in immigrant communities. It's in expensive cities like Seattle and Boston. But it's also in fairly non-expensive cities like uh, Milwaukee and in uh, Houston. This is a widespread problem. But again, on the race issue, is it racial because it so often overlaps with the class issue? I mean, I subscribe to the theory that there's a false dichotomy between talking about race or class. And, you know, Robert Putnam, who is the blurb right above your uh, picture on the jacket cover, essentially saying class is the new race. And he has a new book that looks at, you know, downwardly mobile white workers. But is the race aspect of this just that it's felt so keenly because so many black people in the inner city are poor? Or is there something else going on, something that stops us from systemically addressing the problems? There's a lot there. I mean, when you take a step back and you ask, who are renters today? Most uh, African-American families and most uh, Latino families in America today don't own their homes. Most white families do. That discrepancy is the result of historical injustice and kind of a systematic denial 
of people of color and especially African-American families from owning the land in this country. I think that's something that we need to reckon with. The other thing that we need to reckon with when we're making sense of this question is the enduring legacy of housing discrimination. I remember being with uh, two black women, Crystal and Veneta, when they were looking for a place to live after they were evicted. And uh, they went into this place uh, uh, in a uh, predominantly Latino neighborhood. And I was in the car watching Veneta's kids, and they came out kind of shaken. And what had happened, they told me, was the landlord you know, was describing another place he had to rent to them. Um, it was nicer, but it was the same cost. But then he kind of stopped himself and pretended to answer the phone and said, you know, golly gee, I just rented it out. And so I'm a white guy. And I wrote down that landlord's number and I called him up the next day and went and kind of told him, hey, do you have anything else? And he, you know, took me on a drive to see his his other apartment, the one that he had denied, Crystal and Veneta, and, and offered it to me. And and then I reported him to the housing authority. And I think that's one example, but we have a lot of a lot of evidence about the continued saliency of racial discrimination in the housing market, and that being a real primary reason uh, why our cities remain so segregated. Is reporting him to the housing authority within the bounds? I don't know. I'm not cross-examining you, but what would uh, the sociology review panel say about that? I've always thought that my work was really designed to get to the bottom of things. And I've always felt that when you see things that are illegal, like housing discrimination, you are confronted with an ethical decision. And in my case, in that case, I thought it was the ethical decision to report someone just like you would if you saw someone unfairly discriminating against folks on the basis of uh, sexual orientation or gender or other, other means. Yeah. In the book, you talk about your own upbringing and how there wasn't always uh, uh, shelter security and sometimes the heat wasn't on. So was that a means of identification or did you find yourself reminding yourself, well, as much as I went through it, I had some advantages that a lot of these people don't have? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to read too much into that. I, I did think it was important for me to tell you that you know my childhood home had been foreclosed and kind of where I was coming from in terms of my upbringing and how that might influence how I saw things. I don't think that helped me prepare for this work in any way. I mean, my upbringing, you know, was worlds away from the upbringing of the folks that I spent time with. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, but I certainly didn't grow up facing this kind of poverty uh, that was chronicled and, and evicted. I know you're not an economist, but a sociologist, but do you think the current talk of income inequality is the best way to talk about these economic problems, puts its finger on the problem as much as, uh, as, much as it can? I'm encouraged that we're having a public conversation about inequality today. I'm optimistic. What I worry about, though, is, is the fact that often the poor are left out of the, the inequality debate. And we talk a lot about the 1% and its relationship to the middle class. And we don't hear the words poverty or low-income families a lot from our politicians. And I think we need to. And we need to kind of start thinking about inequality in a broad way that includes a lot of different experiences, including the most economically vulnerable um, of us. Yeah, and that's that's where I agree with you. I think that the economic pol- the economic inequality debate is interesting and might get to a couple of important things, but the fact that 
you know, the middle class is less well off than the upper class. That's certainly important. But what about people who work pretty much full time, make ten fifty an hour, and literally can't afford any place for them and their family to live? That seems to be unbelievably urgent versus the Occupy type debates. It's true that we've reached the point in America that so many poor families have such a difficult time just paying for a roof over their head. You know, we reached a point where the majority of poor renting families now spend over 50% of their income on housing. I couldn't agree with you more that that is one of the most morally urgent and policy relevant questions facing us today. And I think it means that we can't fix poverty in America without fixing housing, that we can't address inequality in a systemic way without addressing the fact that We're evicting people, not in the tens or the hundreds of thousands today, but probably in the millions every year. Matthew Desmond is the author of Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. He teaches at Harvard. He's won a MacArthur, what they call a Genius Grant Award. And it's an excellent read. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Starting a business takes guts. Many entrepreneurs risk big for rewards that aren't guaranteed. Hear some of their stories on the new podcast, Points of Courage, brought to you by Hiscox. This series captures conversations about the moments that encourage making the leap to start a business and how to approach the challenges that come with it. Hosted by Jessica Jackley, author, public speaker, co-founder of Kiva.org, which is the world's first crowdfunded micro-lender. Points of Courage is a powerful resource for active and aspiring entrepreneurs, business owners, and anyone who believes that nothing great is achieved without risk. Get an intimate look into the realities and rewards of running a business in America. Subscribe to Points of Courage wherever you get your podcasts and learn more about what Hiscox can do for your business by going to Hiscox.com. That is H-I-S-C-O-X.com. His Cox encourage courage. And now the spiel. No human being would stack books like this. Perhaps not surprisingly for a society that was convulsed in paroxysms of rage concerning Beyonce's choice of costumes at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. The new Ghostbusters movie, which opens in a month, has been the source of outrage and condemnation. So the new all-female cast of this, the third in the Ghostbusters series, was not, repeat not, had nothing to do with the reason that this YouTube reviewer from Cinemassacre swore that he would be taking a different tack with Ghostbusters. That tack, in fact, calls into question the very nature, or at least the very prefix, of his role as a reviewer. But this one, judging from the trailers, it looks awful. So instead of doing what everybody else is going to do, their job, go see the movie and then talk about how bad it is. I'm going to do something different. Not see the movie and talk about how bad it is? I'm not going to see it. Wow. What a novel concept, right? If you already know, you're going to hate it. In fact, yes, that's what he's going to do. He will also be reporting from the NBA Finals especially tackling the question of why Festus Azili and not LeBron James should have been named MVP. He's just making an educated guess on this one. Also, he'll be opining about why the Seamus Haney translation of Beowulf was a disservice to the original, even though he never read the translation, can't read Old English, and probably is confusing Beowulf with that Liam Neeson movie about the wolf. Now, look, I understand that the reviewers, they represent a sort of, I don't know, like a community. All right, maybe community is too grand. 
they're like a they're like a neighborhood. And in this neighborhood, the sight of an all-female cast reclaiming a beloved franchise, well, well, to them, that's just strange. And as we know, if there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? So it's doubly frustrating that the ailment and the cure circle back unto themselves. They can't quite shake the feeling that this new Ghostbuster film it's just something, I don't know, to them it's just something weird and it don't look good. Which raises the obvious point, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters! But of course, they can't call Ghostbusters because who might show up? Well, Kristen Wiig or Melissa McCarthy or Kate McKinnon or Leslie Jones or some other lesser acting light than Harold Ramis. And of course, that would be disturbing. Not like slimy ghost fun disturbing. It would be, it would be terrible. It would be a cataclysm. This is, this is. The word we're looking for is apocalypse. Yeah, I was going for biblical, you know, Old Testament, wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together Thursday on the Trump campaign. Although I have heard that the female Ghostbusters deploy a more fundamental form of ghostbusting. They're less the high aerial razzle-dazzle of the male Ghostbusters, but more of the ghostbusting that doesn't turn the ball over, that values the proton pack. It's more about team ghostbusting. It relies on proper form and execution. And while it's true that several of the new Ghostbusters have had to augment their salaries by busting Turkish or Russian ghosts overseas, they grew up as little girls dreaming of a time when they could bust ghosts before a U.S. audience. And why did they do that? Well, obviously, Ray Parker said it best when he intoned that busting makes me feel good. Of course it does. Unless you're a dude who can't stand to, quote, have your childhood ruined. Nice childhood you got there. That was less than a two-hour movie. That was your childhood? By the way, they made a sequel where the antagonist was named Vigo the Carpathian. That didn't ruin it for you? In fact, it does seem odd that all it takes is a bunch of lady Ghostbusters to, quote, ruin your childhood, when in the interregnum between the original Ghostbusters and now, we had that aforementioned Ghostbusters 2 movie, not good, the animated series called The Real Ghostbusters. The Real Ghostbusters included a giant gorilla for some reason. Real indeed. The Extreme Ghostbusters, another animated series. Ghostbusters, the role-playing games. No fewer than six Ghostbuster video games. Ghostbuster comic books. A Ghostbuster pinball machine. And according to Wikipedia, the finishing move of professional wrestler Coco Beware was the Ghostbuster. So this idea of not messing with the original Ghostbusters, they already did. It's pre-messed with. Also, Ghostbusters had gobs, sliming, heaping gobs that just weren't original. Like, you know about this, right? Huey Lewis settled out of court after Ray Parker heard this. I want a new drug. And came up with this. There's something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? Ghostbusters! 
But I don't know why the Barkays didn't get into that. Because here now is their 1967 song, Soul Finger. Little Ghostbuster-esque, right? Let me read you from the Wikipedia entry on Soulfinger. Here we go. It features a chorus of neighborhood children who had been loitering outside the recording studios. They were instructed to shout Soulfinger, and they were paid with Coca-Cola. That's sort of an NCAA definition of payment, isn't it? I guess maybe the Barquets didn't retain the proper legal counsel to sue Ray Parker Jr. Or maybe they did, and the lawyer just kept saying, this is great. We're going to take him down for two, maybe three cases of Coca-Cola. And just so you know where I'm coming from, and you don't think that I am not a very much a part of this Ghostbuster-loving neighborhood, know this. Mary, I need your attestation. I'm doing this without notes. Okay, no notes. I'm doing, the laptop is closed. I'm doing this purely from memory. Your laptop is open. Well, you know. When. You're not looking at it. <laughs> your laptop is closed. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. That's Mary Wilson. She would not lie. She's an honest person. Her last name is Wilson. Okay, just so you know, here we go. Ready? The traveler will come in one of the pre-chosen forms. During the rectification of the Valdrani, he came as a large and moving tour. Then during the third rectification of the McKetrick supplicants, they chose a new form for him. That of a large and moving slore. Many shoves and zools knew what it was like to be roasted in the depths of the slore that day, I could tell you. And I screwed some of that up, but you know it was authentic. But here's the thing. Here's the biggest thing. Ghostbusters was not your childhood. That's not what Ghostbusters was. I saw Ghostbusters in the theater in 1984. I loved it. I remember the ghost in that interdictory circle. Those shirts, they were everywhere. Ghostbusters, while fun and hilarious, was outside the circle of universally approved bro comedies. Those were Animal House, Stripes, and Caddyshack. Those were the bro-y ones. They had nudity. They were rated R. They were the ones your older brother watched, but you couldn't because you were 10 and there was barely such a thing as a VCR. Ghostbusters was a little bit later. It was a lot more accessible. It had a better story. It was more wholesome. It was nerdier. So don't try to put Ghostbusters in that same canon. I remember when I would say, you know, I think Ghostbusters is every bit the movie that Stripes and Animal House is. And Jason D'Amico would pelt me with stones and lecture me on why Ozzy Osbourne was the ne plus ultra of the rock era. Ne plus ultra, not his words. I do not know if the new Ghostbusters movie will be good. The trailer does not seem particularly hilarious. And yet those are four hilarious actresses. Ghosts definitely get busted. We know that. I embrace it. I do not fear change. As the poet said... I ain't afraid of no ghost. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson is a survivor of the Philadelphia mass turbulence of 1947. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, does not cross the stream so as to avoid total protonic reversal. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, had an uncle who thought he was St. Jerome. I'd call that a big yes. The gist, the most harmless thing, something from your childhood, something that could never, ever possibly destroy you. We used to roast Stay Puft Marshmallows by the fire at Camp Laconda. Mpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. During the rectification of the Valdrani, he came as a large and moving tour. Then, during the third, then during the last... Then during the...
then during the third 